This week on the I-5 Corridor podcast, I'm joined by John Kinzano of johnkinzano.com to talk about Phil Knight's bid to buy the Blazers, why John left the Oregonians to start a Substack, how he made an enemy of the people of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and some stories about his father's minor league baseball career heading into this Father's Day weekend. And hey, if you like this podcast, please consider a subscription to the I-5 Corridor if you don't already have one, i-5corridor.com. All stories and podcasts are produced here in Portland by me, and I would sure appreciate the support. Now, on to John. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the I-5 Corridor podcast. Tyson Alger here. Today's guest is John Canzano of johnconzano.com, the bald-faced tree. I don't really need to introduce this guy. If, if you know who I am, you've, you've known who this guy is long, long before that. He's a three-time national sports writer of the year, probably got a dozen of those organ things. Uh, how are you doing today, John? Thanks for coming on. I'm well, man. I'm excited to have somebody interview me instead of me interviewing someone else. This is different. Well, I was I was just thinking about that, and it actually it actually got me a little nervous coming into this thing because I mean, you and I have, have known each other for almost you know eight close to a decade now, and I've done your radio show dozens of times at this point, and uh, I was just like, man, like I don't know if I can flip the script on you for this, and and, and I was I was curious uh, when you first got into radio, like. How, how did you kind of come to grips with like every single interview that you uh, recorded was just like live on air? Because I, I'm, I'm a very self-conscious person about the way like my, my voice and tone and all those things sound. And I mean, you've made a whole career out of it at this point. Yeah, let's let's start with the idea that um, I was terrible to start with. So I think reps make you better, right? Like anything, you're going to get better at it. But I think really my interviewing skills started getting sharpened when I was a young reporter you know, right out of college working at a community newspaper. And I was covering little league games to start with. Right. And you ever interviewed a little league kid, you know, you have to work to get answers. (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise you get yes, no, yes, no. So it really does make you work on, you know, what kinds of questions to ask people. And I still find myself leaning into some of those tricks today, but it's all about repetition. Right. And I think you get better. And I think one of the good interview skills that people learn over time is when you settle down and you relax, you really are able to listen to the person you're interviewing. I think a lot of national shows that I listen to and watch, the interviewer is not even listening to the person answering the question. They're just waiting for the next question. And you miss things because you have to ask the questions that that the listener and the viewer want, want answered and they're listening. So you got to listen. That's the first key to interviewing. How's uh, how's life post newspaper? I'm loving it. I'm, I'm <laughs> having so much fun. I'm writing about the things I want to write about. The reader response has been fantastic. I just I'm humbled and grateful for the people who are reading. But I wake up every day and I get to write what I want to write. And I think people have remarked to me that, you know, they can feel my enthusiasm and my joy. And I can tell you, I am fired up about it. It's it's just been a lot of fun. I'm I'm you know I'm not writing every single day, but I'm writing almost every day right now, and it, it doesn't feel like work, which is awesome. I'm 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 curious about like making that switch as someone who was in your position, where I mean, you were the the face of the Oregonian for for nearly twenty years, and um, kind of did that at a time when columnists were still kind of like the. the those guys at the, I mean, like I knew every sports columnist at every paper in the country when I was coming up reading, just because like, you just kind of associated those faces with, with the masthead and like John Gonzano, Oregonian, like it was always kind of such a, 
it felt like such a cat like how, how did you feel kind of going from that old traditional mold of of journalism and, and where they really did kind of prop up calmness and people in your position and take this leap to go independent and kind of just um kind of just not have quite that full company backing but like you said being able to um kind of dictate what you want to do and the stories you want to tell I think everybody can relate to wanting to bet on yourself and, and be in control of what you're doing and the content. And what I found over the years, and I'm grateful for the platforms over the years that, you know, I worked at six different newspapers. I was grateful for every one of those platforms and what I learned at every stop. And I worked with a lot of tremendous people at the Oregonian and even before that, that are just, they, they made me better. But there just came a point in this industry, and I think we're, we're well beyond that now, where the relationship is between you as a columnist and your reader. And that is a one-to-one -one relationship. And I think when you can remove layers between you and your readers, and it just becomes a conversation that, you know, with johnconzano.com, it's delivered to your email inbox and the I-5 corridor with you, and you're, you're reaching your people directly. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm blown away at the, the people who are reading and blown away at the response, but I just, I just felt like I got to the point in with my career with radio, television, newspaper, where I just wanted a more intimate conversation and connection with the reader. And, and I'm having that now. Do, do you think that this is kind of the next model or like what what do you think is the kind of the sus sustainability in this? And I'm just I'm asking because I'm hoping that you have the answer because I still have way too many years of this to look forward to. <laughs> but, but before I can I can head to the, the retirement yeah. bank here. Well, uh, the, the analytics were telling me that the vast majority of my readers were coming directly to me. Hmm. I paid attention to that. And, you know, I, they're coming to me through social media. They were finding me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter mostly. And so I do think that we are at a time where more journalists, I think you're going to see them branch off independently, bet on themselves. It's scary, I think, and it's tricky for some people if you don't have um, you know, a secondary source of income or a secondary employer. And in my case, you know, being on air on radio for 15 or 17 years, you know, it, it no doubt helped me make that leap. And, uh, but I think this, this is a model. And I, it's funny because I reached out to other people who were already doing it prior to making the leap. They were very encouraging and helpful. And then I've had subsequently other people who have seen me do it reach out to me and go, Hey, tell me what I'm not, what I don't know. And I think, I, I think we're all kind of in it together. And, you know, I, yeah, you know, I, I just think there's a, there's a, there's, there's so many layers, I think between the writer and the reader sometimes that a lot gets lost. And so I think when you can break that down to a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I think it's special. What's the proudest day of your career? Uh, this is an abrupt change of uh, subject, but I'm, I want to catch you off guard here. Let's see, that's great. You should ask that. That's good. That's a good change. That's a change up you threw there, and I like that. Um, I, I never I, had much of a fastball, but if you can, if you can throw the off speed stuff, all right, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you this: like when you're writing, and you know, it's a personal thing, right? You're writing your own thoughts, or maybe in a lot of cases, I write about. Uh, I've written about my dad. I've written about my mom. I've written about my daughters and our family, and. There are very personal moments there that you have that you hold, you know, precious to yourself. But there is a vulnerability in hitting that button that posts that and makes it public. And I think for me, when you asked that question, what immediately popped into the my, my mind was columns that I've written about my family. And I think everybody has those stories. I think there's some common themes 
that happen, you know, between fathers and sons and sons and, and moms and fathers and their children. Um, and I, and I deal with all of that. So I, when you say that, I think it's the ability to maybe tell some stories that are personal to me and that other people find relatable. Well, I've, I've always loved when you, when you've written about your dad and, um, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm a huge baseball nut. I, I, I think, uh, I think it just would have been fascinating kind of growing up with a father who was in the minor leagues. Like what, what was that like? It was interesting because my dad was, you know, he had seven years in the minor leagues and he signed as a 17 year old senior out of high school. And, you know, he was in the New York Mets organization and this was before the Mets were cool. And then in his time in the minor leagues in 1969, when the Mets won the world series, the miracle Mets, my dad was in triple a. And all of his teammates that he had grown up with in the minor leagues were, were a part of that Mets team that won it big. My dad eventually got traded to the Expos. He, at age 25, decided to retire. Now, as a sports writer, I have always wondered, like, could I get in a time machine and go back and visit my dad and tell him, hey, you're only 25. Stay with us. Like, <laughs> you know, expansion is here. Like the Expos, come on. Like, cause I really do think he needed a friend to kind of keep him going when he got traded from the Mets to the Expos cause he gave right. up on it. But um, it was interesting as a kid because I wasn't disillusioned like most kids are. I saw my dad at like age 35 taking ground balls during a little league practice. He was coaching us and the little leaguers all stopped what they were doing because he was a middle infielder in the minor leagues. And my dad had those hands that, yep. that like Omar Vizquel had at shortstop where he could field the ball and it never looked like it touched his glove and he could turn the double play and you, you, you look at the footwork and, you know, I, I could not do that. And he could run. He was like 40 before I could beat him in a foot race. I remember, <laughs> you know, I was like a 18 year old kid in high school and I finally beat my dad in a foot race. So I didn't grow up like with these dreams of playing in the big leagues because I looked over at my dad and I was like, Hey, he was a triple a player and I'm nowhere near that good. Now I played college baseball, but I played division two college baseball. So growing up, it was simultaneously like, I, I think a little bit sobering because you got to see a side of the business that was business. And, um, and my dad was not big on going to like major league games and sitting in the stands. And I think there's part of that was probably very painful for him to, to, to be at a stadium and be like, Hey, I was that close. But I also think the gift of it was like, I had the best little league coach and Daniel Vanderwright DVD, who is the director of football operations at Oregon state actually played on one of my dad's little league teams. We grew up oh, in the perfect. same small town <laughs> DVD to this day still comes up to me and says, Tony was, was the best coach I ever had. Like, you know, I, that's what I had the best coach as a dad. Is, is, did that at all impact you in terms of wanting to be a sports writer? I have to think so. Right. If we're, if we're going on the uh, psychological uh, analysis part here uh, of the interview, it's totally like, like I, I could write. I was always into reading and writing. My parents would take me to bookstores and I would sit in the short story section and I would read Jack London and Edgar Allan Poe. And I loved literature. I loved reading. And but having a dad that was into sports and a family whose activities, I guess, revolved around whatever sports were being played by one of us kids on that weekend, like a lot of families today. Sure. I mean, I, it was some, you know, it was the marriage of things that I love to do. 
this this is an industry where a lot of the the big talking heads either went to like Syracuse or Columbia or um, you know name all those kind of ritzy schools on the East Coast. Uh, you went to Chico State, and I've always kind of felt like you've you've written with a bit of a, a chip on your shoulder. And you know I can relate too because I went to a small small Montana, and you know we're consistently running into people from Northwestern who have a little bit of a, a hop in their step because of it. Like what what was your your kind of your experience like riding through college and, and how did that experience shape who like kind of your your route after that? In the fifth grade, I walked into our community newspaper newsroom and said, hey, I'd like to write a column for you guys. And they laughed at me. I came back in high school <laughs> and they laughed again, except they said, write us something and we'll read it. And uh, I uh, ended up writing a column about being at a high school football game and being embarrassed that my friends didn't stand up for the national anthem, right? Talk about before your time. Right. And my friends were, they weren't making a stand. They were just being rude. And uh, <laughs> they published the column. And then they said, you can write another one, write one a month. And I got into that newsroom and started working part-time, answering phones, taking little league scores, high school scores, and even throughout uh, my college career, I would uh, work in the summers and I would work in the winters when I was home on break at that little newspaper and the Gilroy Dispatch, circulation 5,000. My paid? first newspaper job after college, I was hired as the sports editor of that Gilroy Dispatch. <laughs> um, I was not a journalism major in college. I felt like I got a lot of that experience being in that newsroom growing up. And I became an English literature major because I thought it would give me a little more background, a little more breadth to my writing. But, um, you know, I, I relate totally to your experience in that, you know, when I got into the business, I saw a lot of people who had gone to bigger journalism schools, Missouri and Northwestern in particular. And those kids were skipping steps that I had to take early <laughs> in my career. I had to work at the Gilroy Dispatch. I had to work at the Santa Cruz Sentinel. I had to go to Fort Wayne, Indiana to cover Indiana basketball and Notre Dame football. And then I started encountering people at about my third and fourth stop that uh, had skipped all of those first three steps. And I was envious of that, that they had gone from college into those jobs. But I look back now, Tyson, and I go, there was incredible value for me in having to cover, you know, girls water polo games at Santa Cruz High and beach soccer and learn to really how to tell, learn to tell stories and learn to write and make a lot of mistakes when no one was watching. Right. And so I, th I look back and I wouldn't change it now, but there were other times in my career where I was like, gosh, if I had just gone to a little better school journalism wise, like maybe I could have skipped some steps here. I've, I've kind of wondered about that a little bit too, because I do feel like, um, you know, even if you look at like the or uh, Oregon School of Journalism, which is a, a really, it's a great program. They've put out really good writers, our former coworker, Andrew Greif. Um, but it, it seems like when, when you're like a senior in college and you're, you're covering, you know, a, a division one top 25 team, like it, it almost like sets that level of expectation of like, this is what I do. Like, I'm never going to cover anything lower than this. And, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of uh, young writers kind of then be devastated when they have to go take a high, you know, a high school preps job somewhere in, in a small town somewhere. And, uh, I think that's the best step you can take. Like it, it makes you responsible. It helps you as a deadline writer. It like all these sorts of things. And yeah, I, I, I completely, completely agree with you on that front. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think one, one further is like, you know, you get some opportunities at those small paper steps 
to take some chances and do some things and, you know, find your uh, sort of find your boundaries a little bit, because I just know that there were things that I did working at that first paper where I wrote stories and maybe I was critical of a little leaguer and I realized in hindsight, <laughs> okay, they're just little leaguers, like maybe in a little league situation, don't be so hard on kids or, you know, or I got a chance to write columns once a week at that first paper and they're, they were terrible. I mean, they were awful. I was not good. I was not ready, but they gave me that platform and it really helped me later as, you know, I went from the Gilroy dispatch to the Santa Cruz Sentinel to the Fort Wayne, Indiana News Sentinel, where I was finally covering something that mattered, like Bobby Knight. And But when at those first steps, I was covering community, kids that their parents and grandparents were reading. And there's nothing more important in a small community than sort of that feeling and that, that, the, that the newspaper back in the day could bring everyone together. And I eventually got to the San Jose Mercury News after the Fresno Bee and uh, that was making it like I had no yep. intention of going to the state of Oregon. And the Oregonian called me one day, Peter Badia, who I think is just a fantastic executive editor, called and said, hey, uh, like to bring you up and talk to you. And I was like, Portland. And uh, it, it turned out to be a fantastic move. Do uh, do the people of Tulsa, Oklahoma still hate you? They hate me. <laughs> they, they got mad because I wrote a column when I was working in Fresno. I think Tulsa is a tough place to play if you're an athlete and you're flying into town because you fly into Tulsa and it's not the good part of Tulsa. Most airports aren't located in the good part of town, but it was all boarded up and there was tumbleweed as the planes landing. And I wrote like psychologically, this is the kind of place. I think Jim Murray had the great line about Cincinnati once upon a time. He said that, you know, if, if the Soviets had ever invaded, they would have got to Cincinnati and thought, well, we already went through here. Like, <laughs> kind of had that feeling about Tulsa. Well, it's and, and it's funny because I, I remember you were telling me in Grife this story and uh, you know, I feel like I, I if and correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of the, the origin of that a little bit, too, was like as the calmness from Fresno, like everyone takes a dump on Fresno. And yes. it, I just thought it was pretty funny that then you took that tact and <laughs> it's like the calmness from Fresno talking shit. The, like that's that's, that's the, as good as yeah. it gets. <laughs> the Tulsa newspaper ran it that way. Like they literally went, look at the guy from Fresno throwing shots at us. And, but that was the whole inside joke. Like everybody in Fresno got tired of being called the armpit of California. And suddenly it was Tulsa's turn. How, uh, how has the sports scene in Oregon evolved in your 20 years here? And like, what, what do you think is kind of the next evolution of this? I, I know that you're um, a pretty vocal supporter of, of wanting to get a baseball team to this town. Um, this this world of sport conventions coming up this weekend, which is something that we you know don't really see um, in in the state really. Um, what what does Oregon need, and and like how far has it come since since you've you've been here? I think the mentality has come light years. Uh, I got here in December of two thousand two, and the very first thing I noticed was that the bar was low. People kept referring to Oregon and Oregon State football games that nobody attended years ago. They kept, you know, looking at the Blazers and saying, well, they're the only pro team we have. It's okay that they're misbehaving or maybe they're not successful on the court. There was a real tolerance for underachievement that was happening. And I think that has changed. Part of it is I think Oregon has accelerated and pushed the envelope with the support of Phil and, and Penny Knight. Oregon State has not wanted to get left behind. And I think Oregon State 
is is shedding the image of the little engine that that could right they had that that perception that oh we have less but we're making more with less and they've really shed that i think in the last few years and this research stadium project is evidence yeah. of that and and what bob de careless did in in the first place in renovating reeser and raising reeser was was huge so the expectations have come up and we're seeing teams flirt around with national championships i think oregon should have won one with women's basketball and Sabrina Ionescu and Oregon State and Scott Ruick. I mean, they uh, they don't take anything from anybody. I mean, they they just go after it every year. And so uh, I, I even like what Merritt Paulson and Mike Golub are doing with the Timbers. Like they made big plans. Like they they did it when people said you couldn't bring MLS here. They said, oh, yeah. And then they did it. And then they expanded the stadium. So I, I think the Hillsborough Hops, they're making a, a huge they got a huge expansion project going on in Hillsborough. The, the Diamond Project, Major League Baseball to Portland, they're, they're trying to make big plans. So I think if anything has shifted in the 20 years that I've been here, it's just the bar has been raised. And I love that. And I love that fans are asking more of the teams now, because when I first got here, it was a real tolerance for, you know, oh, they just they made a bowl game and that's enough. And, and it's not enough anymore. With Phil Knight putting in to try to buy the Blazers. Is that a move of a guy that's like, I'll save this franchise? Or is this like a guy who actually wants in the NBA, wants to be in the NBA, wants to invest in this, this frame? Like, like what, what, what do you think is kind of the backing of, of why Phil is wanting to get in with the Blazers right now? I think it's a hundred percent a legacy play. If you look at his age, he's 84. If you look at the things that he and Penny are investing in, it's very philanthropic. It's, it's all about cancer, cancer research, investment in academics, investment in football and facilities. And, I, you know, look, he's a Portland kid who made his fortune in this state. He's decided years ago to keep his company in this state. He could have moved it. He you can tell he loves this region of the country. And he and in fact, you ask Oregon State about Pat Casey, you know, Notre Dame came calling for Pat Casey once upon a time and. It was Phil Knight who kind of back channeled with Oregon State's athletic department and said, what do we need to do or what can I do to help you keep Pat Casey? That's his rival, Oregon State. So I think he's got a tremendous amount of pride, first and foremost, for the region. Uh, and I know he's dabbled with buying an NBA team before. In 1981, he had a handshake agreement with the Clippers in San Diego. He was going to buy them and it was going to be his team. And he backed out of the deal before anything got signed. So he's always been interested. But I think this move is about Phil Knight going, look, I know they're for sale. I don't want them to leave the region. This would be bad for the region if somebody else bought them and moved them. I need to get out front and get a partner. And I think he found one with uh, Alan Sm Smolinski of the Dodgers that is younger and maybe has some bigger ideas about development of the Rose Quarter area. But I think this is great. If Phil Knight wants the Blazers, I think he's going to end up with them. If you're a good columnist, you're you're pissing people off on occasion, but a lot of examples you see of that don't come when somebody has held that columnist role or been in that city for 20 years. A lot of times people will kind of drop their bombs and then move on to like the next job that comes around. As one of the few media members in this state that's actually willing to, you know, be honest and, and write criticism when it's necessary. Like what what are the tricks to doing that in the same city for as long as you have? Because they're, you know, Portland for as for as large as we want Portland to be, it's still a relatively small town. Like a lot of this a lot of the players are 
are are the same in this business like like how how do you kind of keep that edge um doing this as long as you have you got to be fair with people first and foremost i think you can be critical but be fair and and that i love that part of this job most of all maybe more than anything really in is being able to have a good relationship with somebody that you can be critical of that is a tough line to walk but i'll go back it was those early stops it was being able to be critical of you know the community college coach at the first stop and then being able to be critical of the high school coach in the next stop you learn in those jobs that look if you're going to take a shot at somebody, you better be able to walk back in there the next day and defend it, look them in the eye, shake their hand, tell them it's not personal. And if they have a problem with it, you discuss it. I, I still lean on that same stuff today. And it was really interesting when I, when I announced that you know, I was leaving to go do my own thing at johnconzano.com, the first three text messages after it went public were from Mario Cristobal, Jonathan <laughs> Smith, and Dan Lanning. And they all were checking in. And I've been critical of all of, you know, all of them, like Lanning's hire. I wasn't a big fan in the beginning. I was like, I don't want to like this guy. You know, I don't know. I'm not sure he's never been a coach. And Jonathan, we've had moments where he calls me and we argue about something. And certainly with Cristobal, I was on the phone with Cristobal at two o'clock in the morning, uh, texting with him after the Washington game, because he was upset about something I wrote. But <laughs> I think he knows in the end that I'm fair and I'm here. I'm not trying to just take a cheap shot to get some clicks or or, you know, take a cheap shot. So I think part of it is you got to be able to, but when you write that column, you got to be fair, but you can be critical because we all know Mario Cristobal's, you know, game management needed work. And we all know Dan Lanning hasn't coached a game yet. I mean, that's fair criticism. I can have those conversations with those guys and go, Hey, you know, even Lanning, you know, I, I told him I didn't want to like him, but after I got to know him a little bit, I was like, this guy's a really good guy. And I think there's something to sort of the family dynamic in his own family and the values he have that I really, I, I really, I, I, I align with. And Jonathan Smith has the same thing. That guy's on the trampoline in his backyard playing with his kids when he's not coaching. Like you can't, you can't dislike Jonathan Smith. Like no. he's everything that's right in college football. Like, you know, that's a guy you can get behind. That said, he makes a bad decision. You know, he goes on fourth and one when he should be punting. I'm going to call him on it. And I think he understands that. How, how much did um, having three daughters impact your writing? I think immensely. I think, I think. Did, did I get that right? Is it, is it three daughters, John? Three daughters. Yeah. Three, da and, three daughters. Uh, I, and and I, I bring that up because over the times that we've traveled together, there's rarely a time where you're not FaceTiming with your kids or, or trying to, you know, back when your daughter was playing competitive high school volleyball, um, you know, keeping track on scores and all these things. I mean, like you've always been a crazy multitasker and, and you know, obviously the family dynamic is such a important part of, of your life. Yeah. I, I I've told my older daughter this, like, I think I'm a better dad now with the younger ones because I learned a lot of, I missed a lot of soccer games. I missed, I missed a lot of events in, in her elementary school experience. And I, I've really been determined not to do that with the two younger ones. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I will often, if there's a college football game on a Saturday, if the, the game kicks off late enough, I'll fly in Saturday morning the game ends soon enough. I'm out Saturday night and you guys all laugh at me in the press box because you're all young and don't have kids yet. But the truth was like, I got to do my job, but there's my job doesn't love me. None of my jobs yep. have ever loved me. I love my jobs, but they don't love you back. I think everybody can relate to that. 
in the end, you know, they will step over your body when you're done to just, you know, get to the next person. Uh, you're, you gotta, you gotta take care of your family. You gotta take care of each other. And I think a lot of people relate to that. I think a lot of, in particular, I think men in their late thirties, forties, and fifties are all mulling the same stuff. Like we're all kind of going, you know, what can I do better? Is this what I want to do until I'm 65 or 70? You know, it, but in the end, I think you, you realize when you hit about 40 that those years with your kids are just precious. Why should I go to World Sport this weekend? And World, what, actually, actually, actually yeah. let me back up. What, what yeah. is World of Sport, John? All right. Worlds of Sport. Worlds of Sport. Sorry. Is, it's Worlds of Sport. Worlds of Sport is Disneyland for a sports fan. Um, the best way that I can describe this is it is everything that has to do with sports fandom under one roof. It is the teams that you love, the Blazers, the Hops, the Thorns, the Winterhawks, the Timbers, Oregon, Oregon State. It is collectibles and memorabilia. It is uh, activations, hand on, hands-on activations, like an obstacle course. Uh, you'll be able to kick a field goal inside the convention center throw a pitch on a radar gun, make a putt, play on a soccer pitch that the Timbers and Thorns have put out. They're going to do some skills competitions and stuff like that. It is a, uh, an opportunity to hear panel discussions from athletes, former NFL players like Alex Molden and Anthony Newman, uh, Jaden Grant, team captain at Oregon State, uh, Keith, you know, Keith Brown, an Oregon football player, Daly McClellan, an Oregon volleyball player, Morgan Weaver, one of the Thorns players, will be doing there. So there'll be a bunch of meet and greets and industry panel discussions. Um, and then all the sports that you never knew existed. There's something called Beyblades. There's, there's going to be a, a Mega Ball. If you haven't heard of that, Pickleball. Have you tried Pickleball yet? If not, there's a full Pickleball court that will be inside the Oregon Convention Center, and you'll get a chance to play some Pickleball. It's just going to be uh, eSports and everything else, but it's going to be an amazing celebration of sports fandom and the the brands that will be there include portland gear columbia sportswear and dutch bros think about those three brands i i was thinking about this today none of them need any more marketing in the pacific northwest but like a lot of us i think they have seen the brand of portland and our region just battered in the last three or four years and we are starving for a positive event so i think it's a great event to bring families to walk through the door. Everybody in your family is going to have something in that room that is going to make their jaw drop and go celebrate being a sports fan. And, and the best part of this is that it benefits the community. Uh, one of the beneficiaries is the bald face truth foundation. And, you know, I'm grateful that the event is happening because it's going to help kids be able to go to summer camp and play musical instruments. And it's, I think it's just a, a total home run for our region. I hope people show up on Father's Day weekend to check it out. It, especially, you know, I was, I was pretty stoked for the city that they got the NASCAR race a couple weekends ago, and then it rained the entire time. And hey, you guys have a roof. I mean, yeah, hey, we're, that, we're, yeah, we're, we're solid there. <laughs> Not only that, it's like, think about Father's Day weekend. I mean, there's a whole bunch of giveaways, right? Especially for dads and families, you're going to walk in there, you're going to get a whole bunch of stuff, all the sponsors and brands are giving away things. And and it's going to be really cool. But think about what sports does in your family. Like, I know my own family. It was the glue. And so, you know, it's really cool. My parents are coming into town. My dad's going to be there. I, I'm just looking forward to seeing, like, seeing the event through my dad's eyes and, and knowing what sports meant in our family. So 
you know, I hope people show up and, and check it out. I think it's going to be, you know, it's an event that, uh, you know, Brian Capel is the creative director. This is his baby, this event. He's the creative director for the college football playoff. Like when the CFP puts on a fan fest or a VIP party, they fly Brian Capel out to Indianapolis or Miami and they say, hey, put on a fan fest. And he's the visionary for it. He lives here in this region. So he is the vision of this event. And I, I think it's going to be really special for people who want to see like, you know, uh, you know, a Heisman Trophy, Terry Baker's Heisman Trophy will be there. If you want to see, you know, a seven foot statue of Bill Walton, it will be there. This is going to be like the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame meets Oregon Sports Disneyland. You met mentioning your dad coming up. When uh, when's the last time you you two threw together? Had a catch. You know what? We haven't played catch in a while. I think no, last summer, you know what? Our kids have a little uh batting tee and okay. they have little plastic balls. Okay. This is really interesting. My dad's 70 something years old. And he was uh telling uh, the six-year-old, hey, let's let's see you take some swings off the tee. Well, pretty soon she was done, right? She was over it in five <laughs> minutes. I picked up a couple of the balls and my dad was standing there with a wiffle ball bat and I threw pitches to him. He's 74 years old and he took me downtown over and over and <laughs> over again. And I was like, when's the last time you swung? It had to be like decades ago. It's like riding a bike, Tyson. Yeah. Well, awesome, John. Well, hey, thank, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, people can find all your work at johnconzano.com. Uh, Worlds of Sport is happening this weekend. Um, is it is just worldsofsport.com if, if people want to yeah. get tickets for that? Worldsofsport.com. Uh, I think it's 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Saturday at the Oregon Convention Center, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday. Um, courtesy of Dutch Bros, kids are either free or heavily discounted. So if you get online and get those tickets as a family, you get a pretty good deal. But uh, I hope to see everybody out there. Yeah. Well, th well thanks a lot, buddy. And, and I'll, I will say that it, it has been a lot of fun to watch watch your site and newsletter since uh since you started it you know i i think you can always tell when people have motivation and joy and just kind of some fire in their writing and uh um you've been kicking my ass man just just keep uh, going with it <laughs> yeah i love what you're doing man and you you're the inspiration so keep keep up the i5 corridor and and keep telling good stories awesome well thanks a lot john thanks tyson You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider.